to the third chapter, to the end of chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, beginning at verse... Sixteen. I'm sorry. No, I'm going to start not with verse 16. That would be a big mistake. I'm going to start with verse... Let's start with verse 9. Once again, reading God's Word. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Father, we pray that uh, you would go before us in the preaching of the word and that your spirit would work mightily for we are in need and you alone know the depth of our need. And so be merciful and steadfast in your love during our time together here. Thank you, Lord, that you are faithful and that we can rest in all that you have done for us in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen. Most of the great gospel hymns that were written were not written the same day that the authors of those hymns got saved. They were written much of the time long after they had come to faith in Jesus Christ because by then, from God's word, they had a better understanding of who they, what they were saved from or who they were and what they were saved to and just exactly how that salvation was accomplished. Aldor Lelanus, for example, wrote... Wonderful grace of Jesus, greater than all my sin. How shall my tongue describe it? Where shall my praise begin? Taking away my burden, setting my spirit free, for the wonderful grace of Jesus reaches even me. He said it right. 
when he wrote, Wonderful the matchless grace of Jesus. Or Jonathan Cruz's relatively new song that we love to sing, Lamb, mighty lamb, who triumphed over sin, severed death's chains to make us whole again. And understanding from God's word, the mighty Lamb of God severing death's chains for him was the basis for his confidence in what the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel would continue to do throughout his life in terms of growth and sanctification. For Jesus is sufficient for everything in the gospel. He continues, gentle in power, both kind and strong thou art. O lamb and lion, conquer all my heart. The believers in Colossae to whom Paul wrote were relatively new converts and for the sake of their spiritual well-being in their daily walk of faith with Christ, they needed to come to a better understanding of the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel. And so I hope as we've gone through this epistle, you have felt, as I have, that the Apostle Paul sort of pulled out all the stops and he just put the pedal to the metal. Here's who he is. And here's who you are in him through faith alone. In verses 11 and 12, I thought he tenderly explained to them and us what their physical baptisms symbolized in all that God in Christ had done for them to save them spiritually and to bring them to new life and resurrection life through faith alone. Well, that's the power of the gospel. Now, as he draws closer and closer to explaining how they are to live out the gospel in their daily lives, he really puts the pedal to the metal in describing what they were saved from and what they're saved to and how that was all accomplished for them. Well, he does this by telling them about both the wonder and the work of salvation in verses 13 through 15. The wonder of salvation, Paul says, is that God has brought us from being spiritually dead. He's brought us from being spiritually dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of our sinful flesh and has made us alive together with Christ. In our broad evangelical culture today, it might seem just a little bit strange that the Apostle Paul feels like he has to teach these Christians in Colossae about the circumstances and details of their conversion to Jesus Christ. I mean, they had repented of their sin, 
and gladly received Christ through faith, and therefore they were saved. Isn't that all that matters? And the answer is absolutely not. No. We have learned throughout this epistle that in order to continue growing in thankful obedience as God's children, we must dive deeper and deeper throughout the entirety of our Christian lives in understanding the wonder and blessing of all that God in Christ has done for us. And if Christians are not faithfully taught from Scripture alone what was involved in their coming to faith in Jesus Christ in all of its many different facets, well, then amazing grace can quickly become mediocre grace. And mediocre grace always undermines the sufficiency of Christ in the Christian mind and inevitably leads him or her to prideful dependence upon self in trying to live out the Christian life. So Paul teaches the saints at Colossae and us today, saying, you were dead spiritually, but God made you alive together with Christ. You were spiritually dead in trespasses, and your life was characterized by one thing and one thing only. It was characterized by sin's complete domination over you in the uncircumcision of your sinful flesh. And God has made you alive together with Christ. The Apostle Paul likes for us to sort of see before and after pictures of the effects of God's powerful gospel work in our lives. The before picture is we were physically alive, but spiritually we were a corpse. And the after picture is you're now spiritually alive, in union with the Lord Jesus Christ by God's saving power. The Apostle Paul says something very similar in Ephesians chapter 2. He gives the before and the after picture. You were dead, Paul says in Ephesians 2, in trespasses. A few verses down, he says, you were by nature children of wrath, but God, being great in mercy, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and you have been raised up with him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. For by grace you are saved through faith. And it is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast.
the before picture in Colossians and Ephesians is we were physically alive, walking dead men, but we were spiritually a corpse. And the after picture is you're now spiritually alive in union with the Lord Jesus Christ through faith. He has made you alive in union with Christ. Do you see how the Apostle Paul holds their former state of spiritual death side by side with their being made alive in union with Christ? I believe he does this to keep us from minimizing who we were before God saved us. You can't make someone alive unless they're dead first. The bottom line for Paul is this. The wonder of salvation is only going to be fully realized and appreciated against the backdrop of who we were before God saved us. Now, in the original, the word dead, brace yourself, means dead. Spiritually, Paul says, you were like a corpse. You were absolutely lifeless to any true spiritual desire or good. You were completely unresponsive. Paul describes this condition to a T in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. In the movie The Princess Bride, Miracle Max said that Wesley was not all the way dead. He was just mostly dead. If he was all the way dead, then there was nothing left for Miracle Max to do except go through his pockets and look for spare change. God's holy word tells us because Christians otherwise would never know. Whenever someone gets saved, they have to be taught that they were spiritually all the way dead. But thank God that the Lord Jesus Christ is not like Miracle Max. Jairus' 12-year-old daughter was all the way dead, and Jesus brought her back to life. In his funeral procession, the son of the widow of Nain was all the way dead, and Jesus brought him back to life. That's what Jesus does. He specializes in that. Lazarus wasn't mostly dead, was he? And you and I did not come into the world merely spiritually weak and crippled with some ability. No, there's a big difference between mostly dead and dead. 
What did God tell our representative Adam? He said, on the day you eat of this fruit, you shall, what is it, children? You shall surely die. We just learned in Sunday school that Adam, being our perfect representative by God's design, when he sinned, we sinned in Adam. He is our federal head. And from that point on, all those who are born are born physically alive and spiritually dead. This past evening at Children's Catechism Club, Laurie illustrated this for the children. She took a jar of water and put one drop of food coloring in that water, and the children just, just watched it as it slowly permeated the whole entire jar. In his fallen sinful state, man is radically corrupt like that in his nature, by nature. It does not mean that man is as bad as he could be. Not everyone is a serial killer, are they? But what it means is that every part of man is corrupted by sin, his mind, his will, and his emotions, and his motives are all corrupted. He's radically corrupted. Therefore, he is totally incapable of doing any good as the holy God deems goodness. He's not as bad as what he could be. Unbelievers often are honest. Unbelievers often give to charity and do many, many other, quote, good things, but they are dead, and therefore they are unresponsive to the things about what glorify God. Man is radically depraved, and he cannot, in and of himself, choose God. He can make attempts at righteousness, and he can make attempts at acts of goodness, but in God's sight, every act that he attempts is just like a filthy rag. Paul is crystal clear in describing who man is by nature in Adam, saying in Romans 3, no one does good. No one does good as God deems goodness unless, unless, unless God graciously and powerfully brings a sinner out of this death and makes him or her alive together with Christ through faith. Now, I don't give the gospel like this in the world. But this is what Christians need to learn after they are saved. Because unless we grasp more and more throughout our lives the wonder of all that is involved in the gospel, we will not have as full of a heart of gratefulness and it's out of thanks to all that he has done for us in the gospel that that we live and that we serve him. Everything else is legalism. The gospel is for the unsaved and the gospel is for 
the saved. Remember what the false teachers were saying to the believers at Colossae? They were saying, it's okay to trust Jesus. That's a good thing. But he's insufficient for the fuller spiritual experience. Just add to Jesus by doing these certain things and see how quickly you feel spiritual. And Paul is like, no, no. Consider the wonder of salvation, brothers and sisters, he says, and it will be impossible to doubt that he is sufficient for everything in the gospel. The absolute wonder of the gospel is that we were dead in trespasses and sins, and God has made us alive together with him through faith. That's the wonder of the gospel. And that leads us to the work of the gospel, because the work of the gospel is the basis of all God's saving wonders. He begins to describe the saving work that Christ did for us on the cross in verse 13. Having forgiven us all our transgressions by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all of its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ had a mountain of burdensome legal debt because of his failure to perfectly keep keep the demands of God's righteous law. God's law stipulates that we must be good, and we were not good. His law stipulates that we must be perfect in obedience. We didn't even get one step toward first base in our obedience. I owed God goodness. I owed him perfect obedience, and I did not pay up. Only God knows the full extent of what our record of debt was because of our failure to meet the legal demands of his righteous law. The law demanded that we put him first in absolutely everything, and we did not do that. The law demanded that our worship be solely directed to God, and shamefully, we have worshiped ourselves and our money and our comfort and our abilities. It demanded that our speech in regard to his holy name always be used in an exalted, God-glorifying way, and we did not do that. God's law demanded we keep his holy day, and we did not do that. It demanded that we honor and obey our parents, guilty. It demanded that we hold no ill toward anyone, Thou shalt not kill. No ill will to flesh that out. Guilty. It demanded purity of mind, and we lost it. It demanded that we never steal anything, but we did anyway. It demanded that we never shade the truth. Guilty. It demanded that we never envy what others have. Money. Their leisure and their status. 
every Christian needs to know that he has a criminal record before God that is deserving of the electric chair and much worse than that, <coughs> eternal hell forever and ever. The law demanded goodness from us, brothers and sisters, as God deems goodness, and we covered it up with leaves. Then we covered up our lack of goodness with beautiful clothes and nice homes and strong opinions and great achievement. By nature, we have gone our own way. That's what a trespass is. That's what it means to be dead in trespasses, to go your own way. The Lord said to Adam in the garden, the day you eat of that tree there, you will be trespassing and you will die. All we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has turned to his own way. Guilty, 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 guilty. But God's work done on the cross has provided something that should put a song in our own heart, whether we're songwriters or not. It should put a skip in our walk. He has provided full forgiveness by canceling the record of our debt that stood against us with all of its legal demands. He set our record of debt aside by nailing it to the cross. What would have come to mind for the believers at Colossae would have been a handwritten record of debt that was used as a legal IOU signed by the debtor. In light of the crucifixion of Christ, it would have also come to the Colossians' minds that in the Roman system, when a criminal was crucified, his crimes were nailed to the cross with him. Do, do you remember what crimes were, or what crime was nailed to the cross of Jesus? This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Therefore, we crucify you. That was the visible crime, though, that was written and nailed to his cross. But what was just as surely nailed to the cross of Christ were all of our crimes against God, the entire debt of record. And in the death of our Lord and Savior, our champion, Jesus Christ, our debt was fully paid. Was it for crimes that I had done he groaned upon the tree? The hymn writer wrote, amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. Not only did Christ pay for all of our sins so that we might believe and be forgiven, he achieved the full measure of what God's law demanded in his perfect obedience. And as the second Adam that we learned in Sunday school this morning as well, 
He represented us there too. He represented us. First, we're represented by the first Adam. Now we're represented by the Lord Jesus Christ, the second Adam. We always preach that you can't earn your salvation. And that's true. We can't. How are we going to get out from underneath all the weight of what we owe? But in another sense, salvation has to be earned. It was earned by the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his perfect obedience, he went to the cross and made full atonement for our sins in his death. And in his perfect obedience, he covers us with his righteousness. Oh, how can this be? I'm not only forgiven of my transgressions, but God now sees me in his son through faith, risen with him. He sees me as having kept God's whole law perfectly. <gasps> the first time that John Ryan, probably the first time, I think the first time, John Ryan came to an understanding that we are declared righteous. It's a legal righteousness that we get because Christ kept the whole law for us and we receive it through faith alone. He declares you righteous. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're not righteous. But there's no condemnation because God sees us as righteous and he declares us as righteous. Our Savior, every step of his life for 33 years was winning our salvation in his perfect obedience. And then in perfect obedience to his heavenly Father, he went to the cross to complete our salvation so that we might have our record of debt set aside and there is no double jeopardy. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and we are reckoned as righteous. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Wow. Can you imagine that? Okay. Then Mount Sinai's thunder is hushed. There's nothing that the law can do to us. The law is not bad. The law is righteous. The law is good. We love God's law because it helps us now as believers to know how to live for him and to please him. But the law is hushed in terms of its crushing Wait against us as criminals before our Creator. Let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name, the Puritan John Newton wrote. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched 
Mount Sinai's flame. He has washed us with his blood. He has brought us nigh to God. Our debt was nailed to the cross and paid for there. How many of you listen to Dave Ramsey? Do you, do you, have you heard the debt-free screams? Is that what they call them? Debt-free screams? Well, I, I listened to Ramsey about, about two months ago, and uh, I didn't think that the guy being interviewed to give a debt-free scream was even alive. I mean, his personality was so drab. Uh, well, how much debt were you in? $125,000? Well, tell me about the experience. Well, baby steps and onward. Well, let's just get to the debt-free scream. I'm debt-free! He really belted it out. Don't say it's not my personality to worship the Lord. <laughs> With zeal and gusto, if you're debt-free, and that cannot change, then your heart is going to be more and more filled with thankfulness the more you hear the gospel because you're going to be more and more assured of what he has done. You're going to come in these doors just like I do, discouraged because of my sin, and I need somebody to tell me about Christ. I need somebody to tell me that grace is greater than all my sin. I need somebody to tell me that there's more grace in me than there is sin. I need somebody to lift me up. And so do you. And in canceling our debt that we owed to God at Calvary, verse 15, at the same time, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame for triumphing over them in him. Whatever they had over us is gone now because he's triumphed over them. Praise God. And we can learn more and more all that is ours in Jesus Christ. We can't stop uh, uh, delineating the gospel from God's word and seeing it almost in every word and paragraph. <coughs> we just can't because he's brought us into union with himself. Well, F.F. F. Bruce says that the evil rulers and authorities must have thought that Christ was defeated as he was suspended on the cross in apparent weakness. But it was that exact moment that turned out to be their demise and our victory in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for lifting us up in the gospel. Thank you for this marvelous, inspired letter. Thank you for the words of God that are powerful, just like the dynamite of the gospel. It's powerful to save, and we are not ashamed of it. Thank you, Father, and may you bless your people here and everywhere, and a special blessing for our church family that we might continue to grow in the gospel and manifest in our daily lives what that means in the working out of that gospel. Lead us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's...
Turn to number, what is it, Laurie? 